Welcome to today's podcast in which we'll be focusing on the issue of homelessness. It won't surprise you to know that homeless figures have been steadily rising since 2010. This is according to the Crisis Homelessness Monitor England of 2019. This increase in figures coincide with the advent of austerity. The figures are quite shocking. They include a 42% rise in households um, for whom the local authority has a duty to secure accommodation and a 26% increase in sofa surfing. It's easy to see these as just numbers, but each number has a person behind it. We may as a society have become more aware of the issue, maybe because of COVID-19, or maybe because there are more people who have become more visible on the streets, thus reflecting the 165% increase in rough sleeping. Meanwhile, support services have suffered huge cuts in funding. Thunder and Rose of 2019 report a cut of 50% in funding for single homelessness alone. This figure is approximately five billion in a shortfall of funding. So today we talked to Christina Carmichael, who at the time of recording was awaiting a viva for her research into homelessness. Oh, um, so today joining myself and Natasha, we have Christina Carmichael, who is just finishing her PhD research into homelessness. Yeah, welcome to the podcast, Christina. Um, thank you, Hi, Christina. <laughs> Thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, it's a pleasure. So, yeah, maybe we could start with a little bit about what, what was your study about? OK, so um, my research study is interested specifically in homelessness and how it's being experienced in the context of austerity, so the kind of measures that have come in since 2010. The kind of background to that is that there's been a kind of huge overhaul of policies that hold a lot of relevance to homelessness. Um, And while there's a lot of kind of large scale analysis, policy analysis, there's been a lot less examination of what that means for people in their everyday lives. Um, So my research, I went out and I interviewed uh, people who are homeless, people experiencing homelessness, and also practitioners working both in third sector organizations and in local authorities so when you say you went to experience uh you went to interview homeless people where were they where did you find the Mm -hmm. people to interview so everyone I interviewed um would be classed as a single homeless person which is the general term used to refer to people who don't have a legislative duty towards them so predominantly men younger and middle-aged without dependents and um, all of the people I interviewed were at the time of interview residing in some kind of homelessness accommodation and resettlement service actually two had recently very recently moved on but had recently been in that kind of service and the vast proportion of those participants had previously been on the street and slept rough. So when, when you say that they don't have any legislative duties from the state so because they are single males, essentially, there there is no responsibility of your of the local authority to do much for them. I should clarify. So they have there is there is increased duty as of an act that came into in 2018, but they do not have a duty to accommodate. So they do still. If someone in the group I talked to went to the local authority, the local authority should still be advising them should still be um, assisting where possible, like showing them accommodation options, maybe helping them in terms of rental schemes for the private rental sector and so on and so forth. But 
if you say a pregnant woman arrived at the local authority and said I have nowhere to sleep tonight the local authority would have a duty to provide accommodation that night and that's the difference. Why did you want to research this particular group? Okay so I am I've been interested in homelessness for my entire adult life it's a topic I came to my first degree which is in anthropology um, and I was really interested in notions of space and place and home and it kind of led me naturally to be researching homelessness. I started working in services during my first degree and then full-time after that and so in about 2014 I was a full-time support worker and I really started to see the implications of austerity on services, on the scale of homelessness, on the nature of homelessness, um, on the kind of um, our ability to support people and I felt, as I said at the beginning, I felt that there, while there was this kind of policy analysis of of what was happening in terms of austerity there was less kind of conversation involving these people on the ground at the street level and looking really closely at what these policies meant for their lives and that kind of motivated me to do a master's and then a PhD. So there is the the disparity between those statistics and what we all see on the news and really trying to understand actually what does it really mean to be homeless? Absolutely. And I think for something like austerity, it's, it manifests in very complicated ways in people's lives and, and in ways that often we don't imagine if we only look at it at a kind of national scale. I think to fully understand the implications of policies, you really need to go and look at everyday life and understand how it emerges in, in kind of normal, normal spaces. OK, so, so what did you find? So um, I'll try and summarise briefly. The, the key findings across both the practitioner and the service users' accounts, what I found was that austerity was manifesting in two kind of two distinct but overlapping ways. So the first I talk about in terms of discord between what they wanted for themselves, what they were being told in terms of policy rhetoric was appropriate and, and the realities that they were facing. Um, for instance, service users were constantly being kind of confronted with this, you know, you, you should be moving away from worklessness, you should be getting a job. And actually, when they tried to engage with the employment market, they were finding all sorts of difficulties. And the same way practitioners were trying to offer high levels of support, were trying to, you know, maintain quality in their services, but were finding very, very heavy levels of reduction to their funding and finding that these things were kind of at odds with each other. And this was the second kind of concept that I draw on is this notion of distress, which is that actually when these things don't make sense, when these things are in conflict with each other, the rhetoric versus the reality, actually that emerges within people's lives in a very effective way. It affects their mood, it affects their imaginings of their kind of personal futures. It creates worry, it creates despondency and so on. So one of the the key things that the rhetoric misses is the the emotions and the effects and the practicalities of that everyday living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think this goes back to my kind of comment about if you only look at policy at this high level, you miss all the emotional. And I think that's something that going and actually talking to people can give you. It's almost like saying it it does more than just miss it, though. There's there's an actual conflict between what is achievable and what the policy is telling them they should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. For practitioners, for instance, I think that's really 
very it, it seemed very kind of acute in their accounts because most people who work in homelessness services whether it be statutory or non-statutory have a deep connection a connect a kind of connectedness to their work they're very committed to their work so not being able to offer services as they would like not being able to offer support in the way they would like being kind of taken away from the work that they see as valuable has real emotional impact because it's not just a job it's it's all it was always described as much more than a job and and so that's the, the distress side of things that you mm-hmm. really came across for you and so in, in terms of that distress, what impact did it have on both the, the people in the hostels living there and then the, the people who were working with them? So for the service users, I think actually it's also that they, they all, every homeless person I spoke to in the hostels had clear aspirations and goals themselves. And actually there was also this notion of this sense of discord between what they wanted for themselves and what was really readily available and achievable. And actually... That, that even that within their own interview narratives, within their own kind of within talking to them, they moved between these in a quite uncomfortable way, saying, "Well, that's this is what I want, but this is where I am." And I think that created sadness. It created a kind of sense of feeling very stuck, kind of being you know stuck in a hostel, stuck mm-hmm. in in not really being able to see a way out, and um, for some a real sense of despondency, kind of giving up. Practitioners often spoke about the service users as kind of becoming increasingly hopeless and actually reverting into uh, negative behaviours like substance misuse or um, antisocial behaviour just because they couldn't see another way out. Um, And then for the practitioners, the second part of that question, it created uh, feeling like I think it created real feelings of worry. Mm. And I, I also think it's really important. Um, to note that I did my interviews in 2017, 2018, and so this is seven years after, and actually they were still anticipating the worst of the cuts. They were still anticipating things getting worse, you know, staff shortages, the loss of their own jobs. So actually there's the kind of personal insecurity as well as professional insecurity, real risk of burnout. A lot of workers talked about staying up all night worrying, staying up all night, you know, crying about their work and just really not feeling um that they were able to to offer the support that they wanted to for me there's a couple of things there one um we can talk about in just a bit more detail in a moment but the the other thing about that is the length of time it really takes for some policies to really manifest themselves in the day-to-day so austerity like you said it was seven years after austerity began and they were still only just then anticipating some of the worst to happen despite all of the bad stuff that had happened. I think that's interesting because I think that shows how especially with something like a third sector organisation often they were able to hold on they had their own cash surpluses or you know funding acquired for two or three years and then actually the real implications were happening kind of five, seven, eight years later, mm. which I think is um, interesting because often I've had people say to me, oh, no, is this not now outdated? Austerity is over, which is certainly the line the government put forth. But scrutiny around the impacts needs to continue. The other point about that was the practitioner well-being and the the, the toil it was taking on their well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how were they managing that then? It was interesting. A lot of them spoke about the need to detach emotionally. But actually, in practice, I don't know if that was really happening. That was almost kind of presented as an ideal, like 
you can't be too you know you can't be too soft was this mm-hmm. line but actually how much people were detaching seemed quite limited it seemed they were I, I feel like they were managing by kind of muddling through and taking a, taking quite a lot of the toll themselves I would say that's especially the case with frontline practitioners but were maybe continue to be motivated by this real love for their jobs that was it was all that there was almost this kind of strange contradiction between how people spoke about the work they were doing and how they weren't doing what they wanted to and they never had enough time and they had too much of a caseload but they still absolutely loved their job at least in kind of theoretical terms like you know this is all I could ever do. So to a certain extent that must also contribute to that discordance and, and distress that exacerbated their situation was this con- continual difference between reality their ideals the expectations of the service users and the expectations of the public as well I guess. Yeah absolutely I think it's been made very clear especially for third sector organisations that run on external funding statutory based funding which the majority do how how differing the priorities of individual practitioners on the front line how much their priorities differ from funding and resource commissioners I think that disparity was very clear throughout. So it's almost like they're working within the guidelines of whether it's the government or the funder or or whatever but actually finding themselves having to do so much more to help the clients. Yeah I mean I, I feel like it can be encompassed by the phrase doing more for less but of course you can only do less with less. Okay so what would you say would be the main learning implications for for policymakers from an awareness of this discord and distress? I think it's going to be really important to attend to practitioner well-being and ensure that this expertise isn't placed at risk. These are people who have worked in these sectors for a very long time, bring all sorts of knowledge and expertise and care to these roles, whether it be statutory or not. And I think this this work in this environment really does place people at risk of um, you know, working in insecure contexts, but also working in, in emotionally distressing circumstances. Working in homelessness is always going to be emotionally distressing. And so that's going to be exacerbated to a new level in this context. Um, I think it's also important to think about the barriers that service users are facing in their attempts to move on from homelessness and the importance, especially on behalf of policymakers, not to penalise, but actually to consider why it might be that service users aren't reaching the goals as set out by services and by policy. Are you meaning that step from needing support to now you're independent? Absolutely. And I think um, another thing that this research showed was this notion of independence, which seems to be almost idealised within the rhetoric that accompanies austerity. We talk, you know, welfare dependency is, is talked about with such, um, it's so villainised, it's so, it's talked about with such disdain. This kind of independence is seen as this almost commonsensical value like it's it's quite hard to challenge the notion of independence as being good and dependence as being bad but actually a lot of people what would suit them more in terms of moving on would be something more akin to interdependence. I think that's a really important point and it's not so I think we see that across the board not just in homelessness but um, I know particularly in adult care services this idealization of the concept of independence 
it's an emotive word, isn't it? That, you know, you can't argue, as you say, you can't argue against it because obviously that's what everybody strives for. But in reality, none of us are independents. We are social creatures. So it sounds like that this rhetoric then is making the situation worse in, in, in making a disconnect. So you have this disconnect between what people need and what people want and what the state and what policy is saying is the ideal and what we're driving towards. And then you have the the professionals caught in the middle having to try and appease both. Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how did they manage that then? I think, not to say they weren't managing it, but I think it was just, it was kind of everyday battle. And I think people found spaces and ways of doing things that, you know, found space for resistance or for working in ways that they thought was were beneficial. I mean, several of the managers of uh, hostels and so on that I spoke to actually talked about accessing income from less regulated sources so for instance public donations so that they could act upon their priorities what they thought was important you know use their own initiative in terms of responding to needs of service users rather than having to adhere to very limited funding structures and very regulated funding structures if that makes sense that distinction. So do you think an increased freedom in terms of practitioner choices would reduce some of that disconnect and that discordance? I think a respect for the expertise, for the oh. on-the-ground expertise, I think is really important. And in, an inclusion of people who've been working on the ground in in these sectors for long periods of time, being involved in commissioning discussions and meetings. I think, for instance, so in hostels, and all homeless services almost consistently across the UK we have there's a two-year limit and actually so you, after two years someone is no longer allowed to stay if you talk to most practitioners they will say actually going back to this idea about independence and interdependence maybe that target is not a blank shouldn't be a blanket one that dialogue those messages need to be taken on board more by commissioners there needs to be a nuance to things doesn't there absolutely and I think one of the big barriers was, you know, it's not just about cuts to homelessness services. There have been huge cuts to mental health services and to, to drug rehabilitative services. And without access to those, people are going to need to stay in, in homelessness services for longer. So the, these kind of blanket rules can't really be applied when you then look at the broader context in which people are trying to move on. It's interesting, I think, because um, the buzzword at the moment in terms of organisations is having trauma informed organisations. And um, and actually what you're saying is that people need to be looking after their staff, which for me is the basis of trauma informed organisations and respecting the skills they they bring, which sort of brings to mind all the stuff that's happened recently with COVID-19 and um, how we're all having to make changes to practice. Is there anything you see happening now that might give you hope for the future in terms of working? Yes, I think, and I, I've seen a lot of commentary around this, this is certainly, it could represent a real window of opportunity. There has been mass effort on the part of local authorities to house at least rough sleepers in some form. Uh, there's people are using hotels and other temporary accommodation. So in some ways, this is a huge step forward. And it is always much easier to work with people who have complex needs when they are accommodated, even in the most basic accommodation. It's very hard to work with someone around substances or mental health if their life is on the street. However, my concerns are that 
especially given my own interest in, in the, the support needs and issues around people residing in temporary accommodation in hostels and so on, that this is presented as a, a solution when actually it's just been, the problem has just been hidden. And now real attention needs to be paid to longer term structures to allow people to move out of unsuitable temporary accommodation and receive the support they need. You know, putting someone in a hotel room isn't really enough to ensure that kind of longer term re, uh, resettlement. And I would also, without trying to sound too cynical, I also do have concerns that this period of investment will be followed by further austerity. And having seen the implications of the last decade of austerity, that that fills me with concern. Do you think that there is enough public awareness that just putting somebody in temporary accommodation isn't going to solve the problem? I think there is a lot of misrepresentation of homelessness as an issue. I think it's something that is hugely stigmatised and because rough sleeping and homelessness are often seen as as one, you know, homelessness is often seen to, to, to be rough sleeping alone, that the kind of the wider scale of the issue that we're talking about often doesn't get the attention or coverage that it deserves. And I, I think there really, really needs to be further education to the public, to people working in frontline services around um, homelessness. I think the, the rhetoric that has accompanied the austerity programme has served to reinforce and heighten the stigma towards homeless people. And I think until that's challenged, homeless people are always going to hit barriers. You know, I, I felt like the stigmatised perceptions of the public served as a barrier for homeless people at every stage you know some didn't want to ask for help when they were facing homelessness they didn't want to go to the job centre they didn't want to go to the council they were verbally abused and physically abused on the streets and then in trying to move on from homelessness landlords won't take people who've been homeless the job centre tick a box and it's really hard to get to get any work so I think there really needs to be this wider effort around debunking the kind of myths that surround homelessness and what causes it and who is homeless and what it means to be homeless. And it sounds like that would be a major step forward into reducing that discord and that that distress, just uh, in a greater awareness of what the issues are in the first place. Absolutely. And, and I think it would help individuals themselves. I think that response from, from the outside world, from the rest of society, really does serve to reinforce your own personal struggles much further. Thank you, Christina. That's been really useful um, and really interesting. So um, all I can say is we wish you best of luck with the PhD um, and moving forward and uh, whatever plans you may have. And thanks for getting a really great message out there. Thank you very much. Cheers, Christina. Hi, so there are a few things in that discussion that I think are really worth thinking about. One of them was one that Natasha picked up on, which is the length of time it takes for policies and political decisions to filter down through all the layers of decision making and service provision to really be seen to impact at street level and how we can still be feeling ramifications of policy decisions that were made a decade ago. Another thing that really struck me was about our current situation. Now, 
having witnessed how screw-ups at one end of our society with the banking crisis were used to justify the decimation of services at the other end of the spectrum, it's difficult not to doubt the resolve of measures to support those most affected. It's fairly universally understood that nationally and globally, we're facing some serious economic difficulties the other side of this pandemic. And we know that at these times, it's those who are already in vulnerable or precarious positions, such as homelessness, they will feel the brunt of things. But Christine was right. The current measures against COVID-19, trying to house as many of the homeless population as possible, is providing an opportunity for effective interventions. And these interventions with mental health and drug and alcohol abuse can really only be engaged with from a stable position. So now, having placed a great number of the homeless population with board and lodgings, we really do have an opportunity to make a difference moving forward. And lastly, I think Dr. Carmichael's work highlights how critically important it is that street level voices and practical experience informs policy and politics as we move forward. To effectively support people experiencing homelessness, we need to get away from the emotive and the misleading language that has been used to further the agenda of austerity. We need honest language, a language that reflects the complexity and the reality of homelessness. And to be honest, the people best placed to inform that are those who have lived and worked that reality. And on a final note, at the beginning of the interview, we explained that Christina had just submitted her research thesis for examination. And you may have noticed that I referred to her Dr. Carmichael a moment ago. Now, you may or may not know that when someone submits their doctoral research, they then have to sit what is known as a viva, which essentially is where they get cross-examined by experts in the field and they have to defend their contribution to science. And Christina was successful. So it's a big congratulations to Dr. Christina Carmichael.